Welcome to the Endurance Horse Podcast, where endurance riders from all across the globe gather, sharing their stories, goals, and progress as they train for and compete in endurance events at every level. So kick off your shoes, pull up a chair, and listen as we gather around the virtual campfire and listen to friends from across the world. We're talking with Heather and Jeremy Reynolds of Reynolds Racing. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing awesome. So, Jeremy, I don't think I've ever had you on here. Um, so we have had Heather, so we got to hear her story on how she got into horses. And I know it's an overly simplistic question, but how did you get into horses, Jeremy? Early age, I did have an affinity for horses. I remember, I believe I was seven or eight years old, and my father was um, remodeling a house, and they had horses, and I was just enamored by them. I was doing everything that I was told not to do just so I could get close to them. But I, just, I moved to Lake Tahoe as a um, teenager, and I was on the ski hill, actually. I ran into this young boy that I knew I went to school with, but I didn't really know him. Anyway, we skied all day, and um, he um, said, what are you doing tonight? And it was during our Christmas break, and I said, nothing. He said, you want to come and help with the um, sleigh rides out in North Star? I said, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I was, from that moment on, between him, this um, gentleman was named Marcus Cartillary, and his mother, Terry Kaufman, they taught me the majority of what I know from a training standpoint and just being around and being safe around horses and learning to read them. That's how I got into horses. Thank God for people who are willing to share their horses, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how did you find out about endurance riding? Actually, I credit that to my brother. I was in college. Um, I followed him to college. I originally did not go to school, and I tried to follow my jumping passion. And um, that didn't really pan out. So then um, I went to college to play baseball and followed my brother down to Southern California, junior college in um, Ridgecrest, California, called Saracoso Community College. And he said, hey, there's this lady that has these Arabians they're called, they do the sport called endurance, and um, she needs someone that can ride and start these mm. young horses for her. And I met Jackie Baumgartner and started oh. um, my career with her. Nice. So what is it yeah. about, you said jumping didn't pan out, but what is it about endurance that made endurance pan out for you? I just like to be physical and um, super competitive, and my wife, when I met Heather, she was just a few months shy of winning her first Pan American Games. So um, I got to jump in like full at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just full go. And um, I just loved it and thrived with it. And it just made it a different challenge that I could utilize my body um, because those, there was a lot more uh, heavy, slightly heavier riders. Not that I'm a heavy person, but compared to a lot of my competitors, I am a heavy person. Mm-hmm. So um, I was able to utilize body as a runner and being athletic being able to leap on and leap off and and it just it kind of fit how did you two meet uh we met at my second endurance ride a five-day race named fort, fort shelbourne out in nevada X, one of the xc rides mm-hmm. yeah and it was my first and only ride that i completed on five days on one horse but and uh, he was riding Vancey, so yeah. not a shabby horse yeah so mm-hmm. a hall of fame horse lent to me by jackie bumgarner and that's where i met heather so we started dating a week later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we got married a year later to the day. Oh, wow. That is cool. How long have you been married? 20, 21 years. years. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my husband, this you know, is... We're laughing. We missed our anniversary. We made a big to-do about our 20th. And then mm-hmm. this year we literally went on with our normal day. I was out. I was. I headed out chewing. And uh, hey, his brother texted us happy anniversary. Like, what can we even talking about? I look at the date. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> so I, I ended up like did like one doing for a client, and then I just uh, I canceled the rest of my day. Oh, and, rescheduled. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So how did you two go about deciding to build endurance as a business? Originally, it started out we were um, people we looked up to um, were selling horses overseas and mm-hmm. so and we didn't we didn't know what that entailed but we thought hey they're getting really good money these are successful people we're going to follow that kind of business plan and then mm-hmm. um as things changed and um ethics change and and maybe well-being of animals um we we changed our business plan so so now we tr- we find we do coaching and leasing 
and clinics, and we keep our own. And we've been doing that since 2014, I believe, is the last time we mm-hmm. sold a horse that was for profit as mm-hmm. opposed to, well, if we pass along a horse down the road, it just doesn't meet our criteria of what we like. Yeah, personally. And 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 we do. We will keep one for years longer than we should, just giving it that shot. Yeah, that's kind of how we, we change our business plan. We, we train for others, and then we chain ours, our extras, for others to ride. So that's kind of how we... And then we give clinics in the winter where people come to our farm in Florida and we give three-day clinics. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell we me, start young horses, but we will not only do it in Florida. Mm-hmm. Tell me what a three-day clinic looks like. It's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and basically we go over everything needed. And depending on the level of the person, you know, we'll go over in the great detail or whatever level that person can handle because mm-hmm. there's a lot of details over yeah but everything from selecting the horse nutrition training shoeing picking out a reschedule strategies like it goes over everything and we're we're really passionate about electrolytes and um stuff like that so we go over the whole gamut and we encourage people to take notes and we feel we every time we do a clinic we gain new friends so these are clinics where people audit you know it's a lot it's a lot of hands-on riding, and they ride our own horses. We set it up that way just because we know and are familiar with what our horse are capable of. So if someone were to bring an outside horse, we just don't do it because it okay. can introduce, A, a sickness to our herd, B, maybe the horse is a maniac, mm-hmm. you know, and they get done. The whole clinic is on hold because we're helping that person get, you know, yeah. medical attention or who knows what. So it's just more straightforward and more consistent if we just use our own horses. So they fly in or drive to our house, ride our horses for three days, yeah, this way we can also um, show them how we our our um, riding style fits and how our horses behave because of it, instead of you know getting into arguments or semantics about mm-hmm. arenas better at this and mm-hmm. collection and this. Instead, we just say, okay, this is how our endurance horses carry themselves, and this is how we create these quiet animals. And some of our horses come from the racetrack. Some of them we've mm-hmm. bred, and, um, so it kind of gives the gamut of. And they understand that, okay, look at, they all behave the same. And they're pretty dang quiet, and they go down the trail as they should. And we kind of just, um, how we get them that way and, and just have fun and, and encourage just to get out there and do it. Do you take a certain number of clients to Tevis, and did you this year? And do they ride their horses, or do they ride your horses? We had both of that happening. So we had seven horses start, two people on their own horse that we've been training for the whole season, and the other three riders rode our horses that we leased. So we had seven at the starting And it was kind of fun this year because we had three homebreds, which was very rare for us because we, we don't really call ourselves breeders, but we have um, bred a couple of our really nice mares over the years. So mm-hmm. it was really fun to have three homebreds do the race. So how does that look if somebody wanted to become one of your clients? How does that look for them to contact Reynolds Racing and say either, A, I have this horse that I I would like you to condition and train or and bring up for me or to I don't even have a horse right now that like clawing it. What does that look like? How does that go? Yeah, so as far as sending a horse for training, that's very straightforward. You would just contact us um, either on the ReynoldsRacing.us um, or contacting me on Facebook. And if we have, still have a spot open, then by all means, the horse can absolutely come. We do tend to fill up quickly on that aspect. And then as far as your other question, this winter we're actually offering a new service where we're going to have several of our personal horses for lease for the winter. And what we're going to do is the horse will stay with us and the client would cover the training bill on that horse as if it was a horse that they had sent to us for training. Mm -hmm. And we will prepare the horse, deliver the horse uh, to the endurance ride. It would still be under our care. The person simply arrives, do the endurance ride, and then they can go back wherever they've come from mm-hmm. and most of the rides throughout the winter they would be able to ride with us through the ride not every mm-hmm. single one of them but several opportunities to do that so that should be pretty fun we've had great interest in that so that's something we're going to be offering yeah so heather i i am curious about supersonic zell because that is my grandmother's maiden name is zell and i have a couple oh. friends who have <laughs> they are related okay so I have a couple <laughs> friends who have Zell horses. So I would like you to tell me about Supersonic Zell. Yeah, so Sonic came to us from Tenny Bluen uh, out at SoCo Endurance in Colorado. Um, and she puts on the Spanish Peak Rides and 
many other really awesome fun rides that are super scenic. If you haven't gotten out there, go do it. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, I met the horse and was hoping I'd absolutely fall in love with it. But she sent him for training. It was a secret mission of me falling in love with him. And I did fall in love with him. Um, but at the time, I just had too many horses. And she offered him to me for sale after he spent the whole winter in training with us. And I just couldn't buy him at the time because I wasn't willing to get rid of one of my others. And I needed to reduce my numbers. So mm-hmm. I regrettably had to back. And she was so generous. She had offered me, just make me a, an arrangement. Like, in other words, she was implying, just say you'll keep him and race him and send him back when you don't want him. You're like, you can't have yeah. From there and I couldn't so I sent him back and about three weeks later we met a client that we started working for we purchased uh, we said this would be a perfect rescue so he purchased them so we still had them in training and then after about a year that arrangement wasn't working out we sent that client away um, and then that client couldn't find someone to train his group of horses and sent them to a trainer in Texas who it went downhill from there and in, in, long story short they all ended up at an auction um, for back training board, basically, because that client mm-hmm. didn't pay the trainer. So that's how I then ended up with Sonic again. So now I've had, I've known Sonic for four years, and I've been riding him for three seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's kind of a skeptical horse. Um, and when he makes decisions, whether they're correct or not, they're made explosively at times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my Cougar Rock picture going back down the rock was one of those decisions but I don't know if you saw that picture or not I someone sent it to me and I was like I, d- I didn't know we we were up at the EAA actually that day and I had no signal and wasn't following anything and um yeah I I wasn't going to bring it up unless you did so yeah, uh, yeah so what was he was going up I was alone riding alone and I thought, I really want a picture on this horse. I really love this horse. I want a picture on him. And we're alone, and he's so quiet and listening beautifully. I'm going to ride him up the rock. So I made mm-hmm. the decision. I was basically at the last giant hop of the rock. And I hesitated to tell him, okay, wait, this is the best way to situate yourself, to aim him. And as I hesitated, five horses went around the bypass. And Sonic thought, oh, you're just lost. You're hesitating, and they're going the correct way. And right when he had that feeling, I told him, no, go. So I kicked him, and he exploded at the rock, big leap. And when he landed at the top of the rock, his hind end slipped under him. He was going to have the choice flip over backwards or turn and leap back down. So he chose to turn and leap back down, which was the better of the two choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was I've never yelled a profanity as loud in my life as right then. So he mm-hmm. leapt, and all I saw was the sky. And I thought, oh, wow, oh, wow I'm going to die today. And um, and then when he landed, he kind of had to land and shift quickly to the left because we were going to hit into that big rock outcropping. Mm-hmm. And so I felt that if I corrected myself, I would have pulled him over. So then I ejected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was our, our day. And then I yelled to the lady who directs traffic. They're like, grab him because he was going to go around the bypass and just mm-hmm. leave me there. Mm-hmm. But she grabbed him. Uh, and then I asked the photographer, I'm like, how did he land? Was he okay? He goes, no, he landed beautifully. I'm like, okay, good. So, <laughs> and he never bobbled. I mean, he was perfect all day. Mm. So, well, that was really- he's named after Sonic, right? Sonic the Hedgehog, kind of. So, I mean, maybe he's... No, he's, he's named after a Sonic boom. A Sonic and boom. And the thing on his forehead, yeah, forehead kind of looks like an explosion, and that's mm. how they named it. Well, he he made a dramatic move to live up to a dramatic name. I think I don't know. He's you're the only person probably that has that photo. And good job, you know, getting it down there yep. safely. Yep. I think I'll get it blown up. Yeah, <laughs> first Cougar Rock picture. <laughs> yep, yep. We yep. did it both ways. Has any you know probably not yep. many horses have done that both ways. So Jeremy, I had a couple people tag me and message me to have you on here because they they just have to know what inspired you to ride completely without a headstall. I don't know. I've kind of been toying with the idea for like a year, just been thinking about she's so reasonable and um, and so mm-hmm. in tune with me. I thought I I don't say that I'm like the secret you know horse whisperer just community, but for some reason treasure and I just click and. I always felt different things with her and I would always like, okay, I, I see how you're taking this communication. And then I would go lighter and lighter and lighter with it. 
And I just said, well, I know, I know one person that has done cougar rock or has done tennis with a net rope, and she's kind of a very gifted Tracy Falcone. And I know, and I'm like, but she didn't want, she didn't go up front and win. So let me see if I can just take it to that next level. <laughs> And, um, and I just trusted her. And, you know, it was, um, she's so light and I literally can pick up my finger and tilt her nose and I switch leads when I have her in the rope halter. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can do that at any speed and anywhere horses could be bouncing off of her. And she just goes, okay, what, what, what do you want? What speed do you want? She'll like kind of turn her ear and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I knew I'd have the control and like being able to stop and pace and stuff like that. And then the turning, she neck reins, she, she's really good at it. And so I, um, but I, it is truly just suggestion as opposed to control. Mm-hmm. And so I just, this, I, I just wanted to try it. So I've been trying it with groups of energetic horses and her on a fresh day where she's not like bogged down with training. Um, and that was, that was work. her first race attempting that too, yeah, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I trained it the last months maybe and um just decided i think i think i can do it and why not do it now so mm-hmm. yeah and he did have an emergency repulsor in a saddlebag in case that morning she said i'm not going to listen to you emergency yeah. had to tie her up or help someone mm-hmm. ready to do that too this was her fifth completion so did she earn that special extra award there this year she did and it's a little, and it's a little coin and i know she's on now a perpetual a perpetual trophy as well, but the coin is actually her like ten times removed relative. Oh wow! Now drinking out of the um, wa- um, Wendell Roby's water bottle canteen. Actually, there's a pretty famous picture of that, mm-hmm. and it's on the coin. Yeah. So last year, I think this ties in pretty well um, to the the bridal list because I. I like to talk about training things, too. Last year, when Heather and I talked, we talked about the importance of training a horse to have good self-carriage. And a lot of people were asking me, you know, about to ask you about the bit list, and they were really in awe of that. Um, just to give us, like, an overall picture, you're, you're not riding her headstallless always. This was, like, tr- uh, something you were aiming at to do for this event. Sure. Um, you know, I grew up um, doing a lot of lessons, and I was a jumper. And now I'm actually starting to pick up jumping again. And I know how collection and, and proper um, building through the top line, and it works. But um, for endurance horses, um, Heather and I have had a wholly, uh, totally different theory on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we dealt with so many racehorses, and um, I've seen upside-down necks with horses that are forced into a carriage. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, we go. We try to go in their free-flowing movement. Now, if we have a horse that comes to us and has an upside-down neck because it's been bracing against a running martingale, or um, most of the time that's why I see the upside-down neck is bracing against a running martingale or just racing against the bit, pulling against the bit the whole time. And mm-hmm. So we teach horses to be on a loose rein the entire time, and I – in neutral position so that their neck is kind of reached out like normal, like you would mm-hmm. see a horse wild. And um, through proper um, movement in their trot or canter and not um, putting pressure on their head, they start carrying themselves in that correct way, and then their neck starts leveling out. Now, there are some horses that they, they're kind of almost like runaways and stuff, but if you actually learn to, like, give them their head – and just play with your fingers and never pulling both reins at the same time. I just kind of tickle their mouth when I want to, when they're kind of getting inverted when they first come to us. Mm-hmm. But I never try to pull on both reins at the same time. And then we set them up to travel in a line because they are a herd animal. They like to travel in a line. If we have horses that are racy or something like that, we never, we just go head to tail and we learn where they're better positioning in the group so that we can get them calm so we don't have to keep checking them and half-halting and stuff like that. And then we find that they just start developing that. And then with, I mean, we do a lot of cantering in Florida, and we do a little bit in California. But um, I think that um, they build that top line if they're not pressure, mm-hmm. where they're, you know, arching their back and whatnot. Because I've seen beautiful drivers do amazing things, and their top line to me is weak. Um, mm-hmm. the, the 
they have a, a, sl- a slight sway back and stuff like that. And I, um, and, and they're going for a different movement sometimes. And I, I, I and all our horses, um, we, when they're with us long enough, we can't, we have to have flat tree saddles because they cannot have any bit of rocker to them mm-hmm. because their backs um, started developing so flat and strong. And that's just from that freedom, um, to, to travel the way I, I believe nature intended. And, um, and I have nothing against all the arena stuff. And I know there's times that we do do that. Um, and we teach collection and when a horse is in a certain way, but we found that more freedom and traveling in that level headset without pressure that they start developing way better to the top line. And, um, and then, I feel like I have a little bit more control in, with my legs and, and they feel your body positioning around turns and whatnot. So that's just how our take is on it. Mm-hmm. I think, Heather, last year you mentioned that you do some uh, strengthening exercises that would to- normally be in an arena, but you do them down the trail. So you do, you know, you work on your lead changes down the trail and you do like um, leg yielding down the trail. And is that partly to get that horse working from the hind end so that they have that stronger top line and that stronger back and that connection, like that drive from behind? Yeah, absolutely. And we also found that you could school them a lot in the arena. And as soon as you left the arena, you had to school them again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like it didn't translate. So for us, since we're not going to be showing them, decided that we could teach them the skills that they would be doing in the arena, but out on the trail. So it applies directly to what we're doing right now, rather than having to do it twice. Jeremy, you mentioned riding in a martingale, and we're not picking on martingales at all, but does that tend to, with that upside down neck, upside down top line, does does it tend to be a danger area where if you're riding in a martingale a lot, that the horse starts to be heavier on the forehand? not moving through their hind end and then they get kind of inverted that way or, or what is your take on that? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I, I don't usually see that that will transfer a hundred, like to the heavy on the forehand, mm-hmm. but I do avoiding the pressure, that constant pressure and people, um, a lot of people, they don't think they're pulling on the horse, but they are and they're balancing off their, they, they start balancing off their hands and not really knowing they're doing it. Yeah. Um, that's why you'll, you'll see my reins flapping constantly. And I know, like, when I go in the arena and I get proper lessons on my jumper, I have to fight that because that's not the way they want. They want you to be in the bridle, you know, and the horse kind of almost not leaning on the bit, but, like, you're kind of holding them together a little bit more and with that contact. And I feel like just doesn't I, – I don't feel that's really beneficial for the endurance horse. And, you know, I've argued with a lot of good friends about it, and, and that's fine. And when we go to uh, a, a race where the horses aren't used to 100 horses around them, those those guys that are using the um, Martindale most of the time, they're fighting their horses where my horses are not after a mile or so. Mm-hmm. They're, they're back. To- There's occasional, like, we'll have clients and they feel – they feel naked without it, so we'll put it on for the first loop, and our horses mm-hmm. will go in at five. And a lot of time, I see um, running martingales not properly used. Where to me, I don't, I don't ever see when you, if you're using one collection, on it, I don't see the angles correct. So mm-hmm. I don't think they're they're using their top line properly because they're just breaking, um, breaking at the pole or mid neck, um, depending on the horse. But and I just don't think it's a fluid motion all the way through the body. And I. And I feel like just ha- having them listening, getting them to be loose and level-headed, how the nature intended on is the best way to go down the trail. And um, I and you'll see our our horses' necks all are beautifully put together, mm-hmm. and that and some of them will go beautifully in the arena, and you can get gorgeous collection. And then we're like treasure. The arenas are, arenas are too small for her stride, and yeah. um, by doing lessons and do stuff with her and she'd get so frustrated because she couldn't slow down and in the train and be like why are you going so fast i'm like this is just how she wants to naturally move and why am i gonna stop her from doing that mm-hmm. uh, and where she dislikes it i'm shortening the stride that i want in her everyday conditioning and mm-hmm. and racing so so I, I get torn by some of that that classical training and i don't see a problem with it but i feel that it doesn't it doesn't um reflect itself on the trail as, as some people are hoping for mm-hmm. because the trail is just so different and that attitude you know the energy with all those horses around it's just a different thing and, I, and we found that less pressure is better and um 
and that's how you get them quiet and, and, and placement in the herd um, down, going down the trail and knowing how your horse likes to be. Does it like to be a follower? Does it like to be a leader? Can it be in the center? Um, they, most of them don't like horses next to them. That's when they get excited because they, you just, you're trying to start a kind of a race between them because they're all competitive. Mm-hmm. But if you just uh, go head to tail down the trail, um, they get really quiet. And the less pressure you put on them, the more quiet they get. Our goal basically is to be on the buckle and only pick up contacts when you're telling the horse something, and then we let go again. Mm-hmm. And then, if, as long as you're not balancing with your hands and it's not a bunch of white noise background, jacket, jacket, jacket in their mouth, mm-hmm. they really listen. Oh, she's telling me something? Okay, the command is over. And they go down the road. And as soon as you pick up the rein again, like, oh, she's telling me something, and then you'll release again. And they get really attentive when you're not just constantly in their mouth or it's just they drown you out. I was just thinking, you know, possibly just Treasure knows her job and she has become very efficient in what like what feels best to her. And so, yeah, if you're in arena saying, no, 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 you have to collect, you know, for whatever reason. And she's probably saying, no, 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 I know better. This is my efficient way of moving, really. Yeah, true. Yeah. And, you know, her daughters, but all our horses are taking that approach and, mm-hmm. and they're awesome and they're well, well um, every time we have someone new come lease and, and they're not familiar and they're constantly um, holding on to the range of pressure and we're just like you gotta you gotta give up you gotta you gotta mm-hmm. learn that about as a crutch because um, they'll behave way better and they'll stop throwing their head mm-hmm. um, if you just give give them their mouth and um, and just remember how your body positioning is and, and placement of the horse in the string as, a, as opposed to um, side by side down the trail but and most of our trails you know out west, there, you have no option for that anyway, so why do it in training? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in general, in general, most of the time, it's it's narrow enough that it, you're usually not being able to ride side by side. So it's nothing that I feel like has to be practiced. I had a, a couple people who contacted me. They said they loved how balanced your horses look. And also, um, one of them was a farrier, and she wanted to know who did the hooves, which I'm assuming is you, right? And yeah, so yeah. she wanted to know about your hoof care for Treasure and just thought that she was really balanced. appreciate that. Um, Treasure is actually shod kind of out of balance because she has really developed side bone and some offlets from the racetrack, which is a bony growth around the ligament on the fetlock on the outside. Mm-hmm. So I have to shoot her. I have to be really particular on how I shoe her so that she doesn't pronate very much and Mm -hmm. build pressure on the side of her hoof. She was in sneakers this year. I've tried Easy Care product, um, and I do in her rest period. I use them, and and I I barefoot her a lot. Um, But when she's in in heavy training, she needs more support. And Mm -hmm. because I have to put her sideways, I need something to hold her hoof together because she will get distorted from that kind of I trim more lateral or outside and leave almost every medial um, heel I can get because um, the way her foot wants to tweak and um, I just need that angle so she doesn't pronate, which means hitting outside and collapsing to the inside mm-hmm. and, um, and that it just aggravates her side bone and her oscillates. So, um, yeah, but um, I, I, I'm passionate about all the stuff with the horses, so watching them travel, filming them re- regularly before I shoe them, and just watching how they stand. Filming them like video, not a yeah, trick. yeah, mm-hmm. filming them. Yeah, I mean, occasionally we X-ray, but that's pretty rare. Most of the time, I'm just filming. And um, I, I worked with a vet a long time ago, Jeannie Waldron, who helped me with all that. And then um, mm-hmm. she's like, just trust your eye. And, and now that we have iPhones and we can slow them down to like mm-hmm. uber uber slow. To- see like every half like little you can do like by like quarter inch increments um to see exactly how they're loading and whatnot wow it, it makes it i yeah. i just like every aspect of it. and it's important for a horse like treasure who who has she has arthritis she's had it since i got her as a three-year-old and i learned to develop and keep her comfortable around that it was trying at times and difficult and but um it was worth it yeah so one more point on training, because I, re- I re-listened to the interview with Heather that we did last year, and she talked about canter a lot, and that many horses that we see going down the trail, I believe, Heather, what you said was that they they think of the canter as purely acceleration, but you want them to learn to kind of just live in that gate as a gate. Yeah, um, it, and I think it's more common in regions that have a lot of hills. It's hard to get into the rhythm to train the horse to maintain the canter at an actual mile per hour, like 
this horse is going to hold 10 to 12 miles an hour, whatever is the comfortable speed for that horse, usually more closer to 12 miles an hour, but they're going to maintain like they would at a trot, just hold a steady gait rather than just accelerate until you're at full blast running. Because mm-hmm. um, it is an actual gait and an endurance, uh, depending on what region you're in, that might not be completely happening. Uh, on the flatter regions, I think the horses learn to get in that rhythm a little better and, and train and develop and learn how to canter at an actual pace rather than accelerating as much. But in the hills, it can be a little challenging because um, the horse is just seeing it as a way to get to the top of the hill and just runs up the hill. So, yeah, I think it is important for your horse to maintain an actual consistent speed at the canter. So if you if you had a horse in for training, example, and this horse tended to want to accelerate constantly and you were trying to get it, like Jeremy said, on the buckle at, a, at each gate, how would you educate a horse to say, actually, buddy, you can do it this way? It's, it's mainly repetition mm-hmm. and then... Uh, Correcting the horse and then praising it when it's doing correctly. That's so all it comes down to. Correcting, would you mean change of gait, circle or something, and then start again? Pick up your reins, pick up contact, sit deep, slow down. And, and really with the consistency, like the first week, you might, it's not going to be an instant thing, especially if the horse has had seasons of this issue. Mm-hmm. But you know, first week, you might be just accelerating the whole time, and you just have to keep doing half fault, keep correcting, keep correcting. By week two, they're usually starting to get it. By week three, they probably will they will understand what we're asking if they're really bad. Yeah, and I think it would be a more pleasant ride for the horse and the rider to just be able to be on that looser rein and not pull, pull, pull through the whole thing. Definitely a lot less sore if your horse isn't water skiing you down the trail the whole time. <laughs> so, Jeremy, I was wondering, physical training, I hear that you ran around 20 miles, Tevis, this year. What is your physical training like, and how do you deal with electrolytes, avoiding cramps, things like that? I mean, the famous pickle juice, do you drink pickle juice, or what What do you do to keep yourself going? Yeah, so as I've gotten older, um, I definitely have to take way more electrolytes than when I was younger. I did run ultras through my 20s and 30s. Um, I haven't done it in quite a while, mainly because just for lack of time. Yeah, I, I take electrolytes. Um, I drink a lot of pickle juice. <laughs> Tevis is pretty much the only ride nowadays that I actually train physically for myself mm-hmm. to get ready for. You know, I've seen posts where people go, oh, it's not fair because Jeremy can run this many miles. Well, it's, yeah, you tried, but also <laughs> I have to, I'm eating against uh, typically women that I'm giving up 30 to 40 pounds. And some of them, mm-hmm. like one of the, or two or three of the top 10, I would say I'm giving up 50, 60 pounds. I did a little bit this year, but not necessarily dieted. I got, I just ate healthier. And then with the extreme amount of training and shoeing I did, I lost a lot of weight coming up into the event, the event this year. So mm-hmm. I still, at my lightest that I usually am, I was still giving up 30, 40, maybe a couple of guys I was 50, 60 pounds lighter than. That's with my class. So um, I have to make it up somehow, and and I found that way by running a lot of the de- uh, a lot of the big downhills, and then hiking out of the canyons. I feel helps a lot for my horse, but it, I know that time is coming to an end because it gets harder a little bit, a little a little harder every year to get fit for it, and um, I'm just not as fast as I once was, but. I, I like the challenge. Yeah. Well, my family, we're not like big football fans or any fan of any sport, but we do like to watch the ultra documentaries and stuff. So we're kind of Courtney DeWalter fans. If we were fans of any sports person, it's kind of her. And I think she did amazing out there this year, too. She did it in like 15 hours or yeah, something. Yeah, we, we were there watching across the finish line. That was pretty did exciting. you? Yeah. Oh, that is yeah. so cool. For sure. And she was just so bright and cheerful. Yeah. She looked amazing. <laughs> Up until, I can't remember the stat, but until like 20, 2010 or 2011, she would have won every Western States up until that point. With her time with this her year. time this year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She is amazing. But she talks about the pain cave, and I bet you that's when she's in those moments of like how David Goggins thinks about it. So I, I think they all have good um, places. And I was fortunate to run for a brief moment at one time when I was pacing um, a gentleman for um, Badwater. And it was when David Goggins just started running ultras. Mm-hmm. And um, he was definitely inspiring out there in his ripped T-shirt and um, shorts with no you know, bells and whistles of all the other guys around. And he was just, you know, grunting it out with his, um, his toughness, mental toughness. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Yeah, I admire both of them for different reasons. You know, like Courtney, she 
Like she's like you mentioned skiing. She had started skiing, and that's the coach that taught her about the pain cave, and then the, the versatility of her to just go, "Ma'am, I'm going to try running and fail," and then like, "Ma'am, I'm going to, I'm actually going to do this and do it," you know, and then just blast onto the scene. And then Goggins was like, just like you said, he kicked his own butt, you know, mm-hmm. and made this huge transformation just because he wanted to be a seal, and any person you know, could have easily given up, you know, he failed so many times. So I think I admire both of them for different reasons, you know, because he's kind of the epitome of, you know, you just, if you fail, did you really want it and get back up and do it again? I mean, because how many times did he go through the SEAL training, you know, so that, you know, inspirational for different, for different reasons. And I think I, that's why I like any kind of like ultra or endurance theme is because it's it kind of matches the perseverance that you need in life because life knocks you down so many times that having people that push through endurance from for any sport you know it is kind of an example of yep you can pick yourself back up and get going again and I think that's kind of what I like about that so back to the horses as we're starting to wrap up here because we have we have listeners of every level we have brand new people who just learned the word endurance or we have people who've been riding for a long time and we have some people that are retired and just still interested in listening i had a question about taper so do you work taper into your training so as you're coming up to your your main event that you're training for like tavis do you and how do you work if you do how do you work tapering your horse so that they're peaked at that time. Yeah. Oh. yeah we definitely oh. do, yeah. a three-week taper usually. Yeah. And we'll reduce the, yeah. the workload starting three weeks out. We don't really taper for 50s because we're using 50s as training rides but typically, but we do taper for our 100s by three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then with taper comes tapering feed and making sure with the workload matches the feed so that you don't have problems with tie-up and such like that. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a great article to add into um, the Endurance News magazine because I think not everybody's always familiar with what tapering is. If you had somebody who is brand new to that term, could you just describe what that would, would be? Yeah, you're basically getting the horse all the way ramped up on fitness, and then the taper, you're reducing the workload to make sure the horse is fully rested and recovered by the time of your event. So in those three weeks, you're not losing fitness. You're just gaining rest and hopefully repairing any little soft tissue traumas that have happened, little micro tears perhaps. It's very common, especially these big races that you arrive at the starting line, not common for us, but common in general, that the horse arrives tired at the starting line. If you were to look at on a graph, you would, um, the graph increases and you're climbing like a mountain in the graph. And then that last three weeks, Instead of some people just like stop completely, which that graph would mean it go up a mountain and then it would just drop off where they jumped off, they dropped off a cliff where you definitely don't want to do that, but you want that really gradual slow line to come down um, to where to race day. Yeah, to race day. And you're still exercising them like a normal schedule. You're just the intensity is way down and the miles are way down. And then, and then again, depending on your body, your horse's body score and how much you're actually exercising, your feet has to match too as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a typical mileage week in that three-week period would be how many miles? Mm. Twelve, no, 12, 12 to 15, 15 total. Full week, yeah. Yeah, but that's not including if you're, you're using exercise and walking. Mm-hmm. But you want to taper some of that miles in walking, but um, on how much they're on the walker, but... Um, that's actually riding miles on their back. So, but like for the Tavis horses, yeah. about 12 to 15 yeah. per week, for the last couple weeks. So speak to the, as we wrap up, this will be my last set of questions. And I thank you so much for your time and congrats. I mean, as a husband and wife team, top 10 again is amazing, you know, first. And you, you kind of bookended it with ninth and that's awesome um so speak to the person who just heard from their friend what endurance is and lds and they're they would like to work on bringing their horse who's only putzed around a couple hours a week they would like to bring that horse up to 25s and 50s what should they do 
Should they be working that horse every day at eight miles an hour? Should they? What should they be doing? Um, I we don't we don't usually work horses consecutive days. Mm -hmm. um, it's rare. And, um, like a generic schedule when I coach people, let's just say very generically, Tuesday, Thursday, and one of the weekend days. Those yeah. are the days you're gonna be riding. And anywhere from eight to twelve miles, and maybe a longer one on the weekend if you haven't done events anywhere like 25s or 50s if you haven't done those kind of events in within month, a couple months and you might want to do a 20-ish mile workout, long workout on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no mm -hmm. problem. And then and then very little more to do the 50. Just you want to just slow down a little bit for your pacing for the event, the actual event than what you were doing at home. Mm -hmm. So the, the training it should be a little bit more difficult in speed than what the event is. Because I see I see a lot of questions out there in endurance groups where somebody's brand new and then they they have their you know their fitness app and they're like, all right, I'm gonna go out for this many miles and I have to maintain this pace the whole time. And I just think, wow, if that horse um, has never done that, <laughs> you know, gonna be some huffing and puffing and possibly like you yeah. said injury um, i look at ultra running because I, I did ultra running to learn more about what the horse's physiology is going through just mm -hmm. to kind of compare them of course the horses are you know because of their ability to kind of blood dope themselves and their amount of testosterone they run they're like superhuman mm -hmm. so they do still go through the same similar physiological stuff and i learned it's um time on your feet so mm -hmm. just getting out there and being out there for the hours um, is the most important benefit thing and being consistent with it so that you're not, um, you know, riding one hard ride and then you're not going to touch them for a week or so. Mm -hmm. That's not the, that makes you really sore and, mm -hmm. and it really, um, gives you more risk for injury. So it's about consistency. If you, if you can't get out there a long time, it doesn't matter. Just get out there often. Mm -hmm. So that's the big the biggest thing I would say is just get out there, you know, every other day. And it, even if you don't have an hour, 30 mm -hmm. minutes is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, 45 minutes is, is better than if you didn't, if you didn't have an hour and a half, you know, so just get out there. It doesn't matter what you do. Just get, get, get moving and, and be consistent with it. I think I've heard Jeff Galloway. He's a, uh, a marathoner. He's in his seventies and he still does a marathon a month. And he said exactly pretty much what you said even like on the long run days, he's told people, you know what, if, if, if it's a 20 mile long run day for you, but you can't run it, walk it. And he said exactly what you said, which was his time on the feet, you know, the loading and the time on the feet yeah. mattered. And I've heard people come back and say to him time and again, is like, it really worked. <laughs> you know, they thought they yeah. wouldn't have also, the. Also being really flexible with your scheduling. Like you can't just write it out on paper and do exactly what's said on the paper because the horse is a, a living thing too and he might mm -hmm. wake up and be like yeah i'm not on board for that plan today so you have to be flexible too to adjust mm -hmm. based on what your horse tells you that day yeah like like for instance like treasure takes about two and a half miles to warm up and if it takes her three miles or three and a half miles i'm gonna okay i'm not gonna do what my goal what what i have for plan for the day i'm gonna back it down and because she's not recovered from the last workout so um, it's it's being adaptive and never like being honest with what your horse is telling you. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and really listening to them. And um, you can use the aids uh, like GPS to like, am I feeling she feels they feel different? Um, what was my what's my speed and my perceived effort? Is mm -hmm. it the same or is it slower? And well, um, so and those are and don't and like if you think like they feel stiff or they just look more into it. What if it's just a a little saddle fit problem or, Hey, I didn't notice there was a cut and a little swelling on the leg and it took an extra half a mile for that swelling to come out. And that's what the problem was. And, and that, that wouldn't mess you up. But then what if it, it it's something else that you could have just looked, you know, look over the legs and whatnot. Yeah. And horses don't lie. So if your horse is always some way and the next day is not, and then you say, Oh, he's being lazy today. He's never been lazy before. He's not being lazy. There's probably something else going on. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. but, just be your your horse's partner, just like you were yourself, and and not, try not to make it, some. Then some people get just too much into excuses, but get out there and get moving. That's the mm -hmm. most important thing. This this was not a, a question I necessarily had. It was a question somebody 
sent to me, but I think it probably gets asked often when people see somebody be successful. And it was, what kind of saddles Jeremy re- using? What kind of saddles Jeremy using? But I think you partly addressed it already because you said your horse's backs are different because you developed them up that way. But if you'd like to, you can address it. If not, we can just cut this part out. I, the the saddle that Treasure prefers in the mountains is um, an old Wintech that I've um, taken all the flocking out of and used panels on it. And so mm-hmm. I, it's kind of like hybrid. There's a friend trying to help me copy um, and make something similar um, to what I like to use. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll come soon. But and I, I we use um, a Hyperi saddle. We use an HBA saddle. We use liver stages, um, reactor panels. It, every horse is different. One and, of them went ghost. Yeah, one of them went ghost. We don't. We're not really whatever that we we notice works the best. We'll go with. And sometimes. It's not always the most comfortable for the rider. We just have to get used mm-hmm. to it. Most important for the horse. And I, we own a lot of saddles. And we haven't found the answer, like one saddle that fits mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, no. not. And depending on courses, like Treasure can go in the crazy lightweight carbon fiber tree when I'm going really fast overseas. You flat can't on flat, on flat races, but I cannot train much in it, and I cannot um, use use it for a hilly course. So I have to use something that spreads the load better and, and a little different. So uh, it's always keeping that open mind and not that one saddle is going to fit fit for all. So that that's what we and, and and one of the big things I see a lot of I see a lot of atrophying behind withers and um, where the muscles start like getting the bit top of the shoulder behind the withers. Yeah, and they'll mm-hmm. start getting like bulbous over the scapula. Well, right. and the, oh, that's muscle development. Well, no, you push the muscle from behind the scapula and now it's pushed up on top of the scapula and you're actually atrophied behind. And you're actually leveraging and stop the saddle is being stopped by that scapula. So I, I'm usually a big proponent of saddles with panels. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and and sometimes it's I have to put two two different types of saddles together with you know some velcro or some zip ties, but it, it's just what it is. Um, and yeah, so it's being open minded and seeing, uh, hey, does this look normal? And they can atrophy behind the scapula without getting white hairs. And I see it all the time. And, and people won't listen to me because they, they're like, oh, I love this saddle. And it's perfect. They've never been sore. I'm like, oh, okay, what about this? This is sore. Well, let me show you. And, and then they kind of ignore it. But I, I'm, I'm just always looking and listening to the horse and telling him. And even if it's something I'm like, I can't live without this saddle, I put that aside in my mind and, and listen to them and, mm-hmm. and adapt it. Yeah. You know, and I I see that because I think we're all that way. If we got into photography, for example, when you get into photography, you want to get, you know, look into the cameras and what's the better camera and which lens should I buy? And people have that genuine excitement when they come into endurance. And I've seen people who um, may have a Western saddle that fits their horse the best, but they don't want to look out of place at an endurance ride. So they've, they're quickly, what kind of gear should I get? And I always say what fits your horse the best. So if it's a, a Western and it fits your horse Absolutely. the best, go with that, you know, mm-hmm. um, unless, of course, you're trying to win the Tevis and you need something light and you need both. <laughs> um, but, yeah. you know, so, just. Uh, yeah. There, and there are light versions of Western saddles that just won't have a horn, but they fit the sit similar. And there's so many different brands out there, but. Um, and I have my favorites, but sometimes my favorites don't work for the horse and, or that horse and myself might not match up, but Mm -hmm. someone else is doing just great with it. But, um, yeah, so I always keep an open mind about every piece of gear and every, and thinking outside the box, like treasure uses a tiny little one inch girth, um, with one buckle because her girth groove, when the way her elbow comes into her girth groove with her big rib cage, Mm -hmm. it pushes up into that armpit so I have to use like a tiny little girth and when I'm racing fast on flats I'm actually using um, elastic um, racing girth and up from the flat track and it's not well I did ride in Tevis two years ago on it but this year I found a friend of mine made a one buckle um, mohair girth Sam from Untamed Tevis yeah she made a perfect one for me that fits in that girth groove and it's just a one buckle and so, and that's what I have to uh, re-rig my saddle just to use that one buckle, and it fits her, and she doesn't get rubbed, and and um, so it's just like looking at things and seeing how they fit, and yeah, 
just be adaptive. And I really love your answer to the saddle fit question because it is complicated. And like mm-hmm. Heather alluded to, there is, I'm sorry, there's no one brand fits all. There is no, because um, every horse's back is different and, it, it, and and the needs, like you said, flat versus mountainous is different. Um, so yeah. I, I hope somebody gets uh, some pretty good information from the horsemanship tips that you've shared with us. And I want to thank you for sharing your time with me. I know you guys just um, have had a, such a busy couple of weeks here. Um, before we go, can you recap your business services in case somebody wants to contact you and your best website? I know you already said your website before, but just add it at the end and I'll put it in the show notes also. Okay, yes, yeah, ReynoldsRacing.us. And there's a way to contact through the website. And then Heather's Facebook page um, is another very easy way yeah, to contact us on Messenger. Yeah. And, yeah, so basically what we do is we have horses for lease for individual events, mainly Tevis. This winter we're going to have horses for lease for the whole winter period, which will be late October through early May, um, where you could come in and do the events with us on those horses. But if it's working out and, and we have someone that um, commits, the whole year, there's no reason why that that horse couldn't be leased all the way through Tevis. So. Yeah, so there's some there where then they could do half the year in Florida, half the year in California, mm-hmm. have some variety. Uh, we do the clinics, the three-day clinics during the winter months in Florida, and I do remote coaching over the phone, uh, which is a once-a-week phone call, and we do we go over everything endurance, lay out a whole plan uh, for you and your horse, and troubleshoot and design programs. And then we also do, like, you know, one, two-hour consults just to fix some holes and someone questions about electrolytes or whatnot. We will do simple things like that where it's just one call. And and then um, I do some farrier um, consultation stuff. And, yeah, so we do we do a little bit of everything and try to help people. We also go, we go overseas and give clinics, too, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of fun. Yeah, we try to make those little vacations. Yeah, those are fun. So basically, if you have anything you need in endurance, I'm sure we can accommodate. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty adaptive, and we just like to have fun and help people. And that. And our actual ultimate goal is for people to have as much fun as we have mm-hmm. going down the trail and just in the sport in general. And, and we do that with our clients. And, and, and I truly, like, even though I like to win or whatever, we, we don't hold anything back. We teach all our secrets. It doesn't matter. We just want people to have as much fun as we have. At the risk of being slightly corny, I will say that you both are a treasure to the endurance world, and I hope you write a book someday, and that it's fitting that you are writing a horse named Treasure for that reason. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye. We enjoyed having you along for the ride. Endurance Horse Podcast is where you get to share your adventures of riding good horses through beautiful country. Many stresses in life are washed away by a good gallop, a steady trot, or by simply saddling up your favourite horse for an easy ride. Remember, every mile a memory.